When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Vicarious Nails Edition. It's Wednesday, June 21st, 2017. On today's show, It Comes at Night is the latest in a series of smaller-budget, deeper-think horror films. This one tells the story of a homestead in a plague-ridden near future. And then, Claw stars Nisi Nash as the proprietress of a nail salon, which launders money for the Florida mob. It's new on TNT. And finally, Beth Ditto is breaking out as a solo artist. We discuss her terrific new record, Fake Sugar. Joining me today is June Thomas, the managing producer of Slate podcast roster. Uh, June, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And we're joined by Christina Cotarucci, uh, staff writer at Slate. Hey, Christina, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. All right, should we dig in? It Comes at Night is the new horror movie from young director Trey Edward Schultz. It takes place in a post-collapse America. There's very little exposition here, but much is disclosed between deep and moody silences. A plague apparently has reduced civilization to a set of off-grid homesteads. The movie takes place within one of those, a claustrophobic confines of a mixed-race couple and their teenage son. Everything changes when a second family joins them. What follows is an exquisitely wrought study in kinship, trust, and paranoia. Let's listen to a clip. Before we listen to it, let's just set up what's happening. So in the course of the film, the key family comes into contact with another family. They eventually bring them into their home. And this is Paul, the father figure, going over the house rules. And I think you get a sense of the intense awkwardness that the director evokes. The way we like to run things and we think it's important, you know, I think it's important to keep a routine and stay busy. Uh, oh, God, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few things. There's plenty of time to work out all the details. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Overload. Uh, <laughs> well, just settle in. Yeah. And uh, we'll get working in the morning. And welcome. That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Welcome, buddy. He's hiding. Why are you hiding? June, let me start with you. Are you, uh, first of all, I'm very curious to know, are you a fan of the horror genre? Are you someone who goes and watches these and laps them up? Or do you sit there with your sort of uh, eyes between your fingers or a little bit of both? I am a person who has avoided anything horror or scary or even <laughs> thrillery my entire life. So I was very, very nervous about going to see this film and I, I went at like two in the afternoon so that I knew it would be bright light outside when I went in and when I left and all of that. 
I actually didn't find it that scary, though. Did you? Oh, I found it. I found it very scary. I mean, I, it's more dreadful than it is scary. But to me, the scariest thing. So it wasn't a hugely well attended screening that I went to. But every time somebody got up and there was kind of, crink, you know, creaky seats or doors opening and closing, that was scary to me. It was the act of being in the cinema when an air of sort of portentousness or, or, or something terrible could happen at any second had been established. But the film itself didn't make my heart race all that much. Um, so I'm kind of curious what it was about it that got your hearts racing. Well, wait a second. Before you throw it back on me, did you did you like the movie? I mean, I liked it. I thought it was very well done. I thought the acting was superb. I thought that the director was extremely effective at establishing a tone and of really conjuring a world. But it didn't really do much for me at the same time. Like, I just had this feeling of, okay, now what? Um, I think I've actually been broken by television. I mean, I think, like, the next episode would be great. Like, this is a show that's going to get better <laughs> with every episode. But as I left the cinema, like, I really admired the director's restraint. But at the same time, I was just sort of, well, that was fine. It just didn't, like, mm. it never got to the next level for me. That's interesting. All right, Christina, I got bail me out here. I love this movie. Did you like it? Yeah, I uh I think from the very first frame, I was scared and kind of sinking down in my seat with my sweater over the bottom of my face and immediately regretted my decision to go to the screening alone. <laughs> uh and it's I thought it was pretty impressive that I was sort of uh sunk down in a pit of terror for almost the whole movie considering that there's no monster, you know, the thing that they're scared of is not like a, a supernatural death creature uh, or any sort of murderer on the loose. It's contagious disease. Uh, and yet there's because the family is so paranoid, I think it, the film does a really good job of of making that paranoia uh, contagious. Um, and yeah, I mean. I was very happy that I left the theater when it was light out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie almost completely without a gimmick, right? I mean, the closest it comes to having a gimmick is that there is no it. Um, and the movie doesn't uh, draw you along with the false promise that there's going to be one. In my estimation, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, to my mind, it's a, it's kind of a small masterpiece. I mean, what the amount... I, the the movie that I kept comparing it to in my head in a way was Get Out, which I also think is a is a, is a, in its own way a masterpiece too. And Get Out is is kind of a horror movie, but not really a horror movie. It's really a study of social mores and racial mores. Um, it delivers a lot of information uh, expositionally, and it's very plotted, very thought out, and very tight. Um, but a lot of its a lot of its information is conveyed through dialogue. Whereas in this one, so much information is is delivered, if not virtually all of it, by the camera. And in a young director, to trust um, that he doesn't need jokes, that he doesn't need backstory, that he doesn't need speeches, that he doesn't need very much at all, that the camera can deliver the movie, uh, I thought was remarkable. I think this guy, uh, I haven't seen his first movie uh, and now I'm going to eagerly, eagerly seek it out because he understands the storytelling powers of the camera uh, brilliantly. And secondarily, it's about it's about whether or not the family as a unit is going to survive and what sacrifices within a family unit are acceptable in order to keep it as an organic entity larger than the sum of its parts uh, 
going. And and those kind of that that dread and those moral dilemmas to me were completely alive through the course of the entire film uh, and its final images. I mean, I wouldn't the, the very final image is is uh, arresting is going to stay with me for weeks. But there are there 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 there's a penultimate image that makes you realize this guy, the screenwriter director, was thinking through everything he was doing. Yeah, I definitely felt that Trey Edward Schultz, the writer-director, knew what he was doing. He was very good at what he was doing. I just didn't, it just didn't grab me. It just didn't make, I admired it, but didn't really feel it. Uh, but I would say that I loved the, this. so, you, you know, we've been talking about like the key family, uh, you know, played by Joel Edgerton, Carmen Carmen Ajogo and Kelvin Harrison Jr., who is extraordinary as as their son Travis, um, and then there's the big thing that develops is their relationship and how much they can trust this second family that they kind of they meet that they come to meet under weird circumstances when the father when the the second paterfamilias breaks into their home and he's played by. Um, He's played by Christopher Abbott, who some of us will know from Girls, which is its own kind of association. And so, but eventually this second family, a, a younger family, comes and shares their space. And it was, and um, Schultz was incredibly effective at showing awkwardness. I mean, the clip that we heard was, you know, uh, a masterclass in awkwardness. Uh, but that feeling of, we need to cooperate. We know we need to cooperate. It's the right thing to do. It's the good thing to do. But is it going to lead to our death? And how you mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the the notion of politeness and how we get along with each other, that was really very, very well achieved, uh, you know, again, with this incredible spareness that was the uh, the key to the movie in many ways. The performances of the cast members, too, made it, possible for there to be an entire horror movie within the confines of one house and what was happening outside or what the actual you know scary thing was could have been anything it could have been a war raging outside or you know uh, a frightening creature on the loose um, or a disease as it was but um, you know the fact that they were all trapped inside this house for the vast majority of the film and still made it feel like there was, you know, something banging at the door at all times waiting to get in uh, and and made us feel trapped in there or made me feel trapped in there with them. I don't want to speak for you, June. <laughs> yeah, I, to- I totally agree. I feel like um, in addition to the, you know, remarkable information conveying powers of the camera in the hands of someone who really knows how to use one, there's just the performances. I mean, Kelvin, a lot of the movie is focalized through the 17-year-old son, Travis, He's played by Kelvin Harrison Jr. He that is an amazing performance, I think, on his part. Uh, he is very gifted because he's both precocious and self-possessed, and facing up to the situation his uh, uh, family finds itself in. At the same time, he's its most sensitive barometer of the intensity of its dread, mixed in with this kind of totally forbidden sexual longing he starts to feel for the mother of the other family. Uh, uh, it's I. I uh, June, I just got to disagree with you on this one. I think this movie is special. I think people should seek it out. I'm giving it. I'm giving it um, two, two, three thumbs up to compensate for the one you're not gonna, that you're wow. going to withhold. 
<laughs> I, I mean, I really do think the fault is with me. I really have been broken by television. I don't really watch those zombie shows, but I have become conditioned not only to feel that that dread, but then for the dread to be broken through and for some staggering creature to come through the door and, you know, cause the gun to be used. Um, it, it, mm. It's it's a pathetic thing that has happened to me, but it it, it's, <laughs> no. it, it has happened. And uh, so jaded. I know I am. I, I, I did feel I mean, I. I so li- was that it for you? You were disappointed that there was no big frightening payoff no there was nothing specific there was no moment i'm like well that was a failure it just i just didn't connect with it it just like i left the cinema you know very aware of what i had just seen i was never really in it i never felt i was in that house and as i say i'm somebody you know this could also be because i've always avoided scary movies and maybe i'm just maybe i just don't have the right vocabulary maybe it's a twisteroo and because i'm not really completely familiar with the format i'm you know, not getting that. Uh, so I'm sure the fault is within me. But um, there was, again, there was so much that I admired, the spareness, the restraint, the acting. Um, another thing that I'll just mention, uh, as an only child myself, we don't know for sure that Travis is an only child, but the way that he was um, portrayed, I got the impression of somebody who's been just with his parents, who suddenly has to deal with other people. And I thought that even if it was just that, even if there was no, you know, contagion without, uh, I really enjoyed that, that performance or that, that presentation of learning to deal with other people in your world. But it just, it left me a little bit cold. Mm. All right. Well, can I just say for the record that the point of the segment was not to make June Thomas feel small for her <laughs> lack of appreciation for Chinema <laughs> in the age of in the age of peak TV. <laughs> the Chinema, your your uh, your debased tastes are welcome here uh, on a weekly basis. All right. Well, anyway, the movie is uh, it comes at night. Uh, Check it out or trust June Thomas and don't. It Comes at Night is uh, out there. You can find it at a multiplex near you and come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought. All right, moving on. All right, before we proceed to talk about claws, uh, June, I'm assuming we have some business this week. What do we got? We sure do. First, we want to tell you about one of Slate's other great shows, The Gist with Mike Pesca, Slate's daily podcast covering politics and culture. It's a really astonishing to see how this show comes together because it is a daily production. Uh, it, much of it comes from the crazy mind of Mike Pesca. Uh, and he is really responding to the news kind of minutes after it happens. Uh, and it's just, it's one of those shows where once you have seen how it comes together, and, you know, the work that the producers do, the, the sort of the craziness, the crazy genius of Mike Pesca, the one's appreciation of it is even higher. Recently, the shows had John Ronson, who was the screenwriter of the movie Okja, comedian Larry Wilmore, and Senator Al Franken. You may have heard of him. So check it out every weekday afternoon at slate.com slash the gist or wherever you get your podcasts. And in Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about snowflakes, specifically Amanda Hess's exegesis of this term, which is often used these days by conservatives or really kind of right wingers to describe the delicate feelings of we liberals. Slate Plus members get bonus segments like that one from 
all your favourite Slate shows plus ad-free podcast. It also happens that now is the best and easiest time ever to try Slate Plus. You can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com slash app. And you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. It's a brand new app and by far the easiest way to get those bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. All right, back to the show. Claws is the latest entry in Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know TV. It stars Niecy Nash as the owner of a nail salon that doubles down as a laundromat for a drug money mob. And the show is Lurid and Outre. <laughs> does that mean, does that make it Lutre? I don't know. Um, let's listen to a clip. You thought you was going to skip a couple steps, huh, bitch? Oh. Look at you. You're nothing but a tossed out, pamphlet, junior, Okeechobee, cocksucker of the month with your skankroid ass hanging out your clothes. I gave you a chance, bitch. At the kindness of my heart, I taught you a train for fuck's sake, and this is how you think. Me. This is how you think her? I can help y'all, Desmond. I don't need I your help. I'm kind of shit. Yeah, we don't need your help. <laughs> I know you was the one who told Roller about Polly's ankle bracelet. Shame on you. Coming after a 45-year-old woman. I'm not 45. You dumb bitch. You was never going to be in my crew. <laughs> never, ever. No. Oh, my Lord. Well, <laughs> one would not say that that scene is underwritten. Christina, I'm very curious. This is your first time as a full, you know, panelist on the, the show. You joined us for a plus once. But um, so I'm curious. I don't know what your TV habits are. So to frame the segment a little bit, do you watch a lot of TV? And then tell me what you thought of this. I I don't watch a lot of TV. I watch a, a sort of an embarrassingly mainstream roster of TV shows. I love a good Shonda show. I watch House of Cards. You know, like the things that everyone talks about, I watch. But um, I'm I don't really seek out new shows before they've been approved by a lot of other people. I like. I loved Claws, and I had no idea what to expect going in, other than it was about a nail salon. Uh, and I love to live vicariously through people with long nails as a lesbian. I'm never going to have them. So honestly, I was hoping that it would have more nails. There weren't a lot of, uh, shots of people's like really amazingly well done and elaborate manicures. Um, but other than that, I thought it was a lot of fun. It was so surprising. The characters have all of these, uh, delightful quirks that sort of get revealed over the course of several episodes. It was extraordinarily queer in, again, a lot of surprising ways. Um, and it was stylized and fast moving and goofy and also uh, dramatic. And yeah, I can't wait to watch more of it. Christina, I am surprised to learn that you are a basic TV bitch. I thought you would be <laughs> it's like so embarrassing. <laughs> so, have you seen Nisi Nash before? No, I haven't. Uh, and I, she was one of my favorite parts of this show. I think she's cast perfectly and, uh, you know, carries the show beautifully. Yeah, she is an amazing actress. She has done a lot of comedy. She was a key part of Reno 911, in which she was amazing. And then she, you know, she's done a bunch of shows, but more recently her career has kind of taken a turn. I believe she's 47. So, you know, the, the world has taken its time to, to recognize her genius. Wow. 47. 
And not that that's old. <laughs> that's right. She's young, girl. <laughs> she was in the HBO show Getting On, in which she played a nurse on a geriatric ward. And the part is very similar to her role in Claws. Claws is heightened and a little bit crazy and definitely over the top in a way that Getting On was absolutely not. But there's this feeling that this woman who knows that she's being exploited a lot of the time, knows that the world is not fair, that she's not getting a fair shake. And she recognizes it, but she also recognizes the limits of what she can do, which doesn't mean she can't do anything. It doesn't mean that she has to just put up with shit. But there's a kind of recognition of the way the world works, which I love. And she's such an expressive actress. She can be so over the top and she's great when she's over the top. But she also has mad acting skills so that there is this element of you just you know that she's having feelings and you know that she just understands the world. And she's just extraordinarily good at that. And I just love this show. It's so it's like one of those hyper shows, you know, it's these days on television, there's a lot of crazy stuff, which seems to usually consist of ridiculous plot twists. And, you know, I mean, you watch Scandal, Christina, every week. It's something ridiculous is going to happen. <laughs> and that's kind of the fun of it. This show, it's going to have some plot. I've only watched the two episodes that have aired, but I already know that it's going to there are going to be some crazy plot twists. But that's not where the craziness lies. The craziness is in how unfair life is and how weird life is. And, you know, mm. just the color of the, you know, the nails. Christina, you mentioned or rather the color of the salon. You mentioned that there wasn't enough nail action for you. I, I also a little bit craved more sort of nail art, <laughs> but I also loved the way mm. that we see them struggling all the time. No, that, they're actually not struggling. They're very comfortable. But to my short nailed view, they're kind of the way that they could even just use the telephone with these, you know, three inch talons or, you know, move a dead body or do just face the <laughs> challenges, both normal and strange was just kind of awesome. That was that was a nice nail feature for me. Steve, I mm. am dying of curiosity to know what you thought of this work of genius. Well, you know, the show that you two describe sounds like one that I would enjoy, but I hated this one. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but listen, it's it's I know I'm <laughs> the room got cold all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, this is the show is not aimed at a nor at, an, at, a, at a normie like me, an old white uh, cis uh, hetero, uh, uh, you know, uh, sanctimonious dipshit like get you know, off this of this and show. So, uh, it, it, re it re cancel it your account. It reflects. It reflects on me, not on the show. But here's what I let me begin by with what I liked about the show. I was a huge fan, unrivaled fan of Reno 911. Uh, Nisi Nash finally getting a vehicle for her full talents is is miraculous. That's terrific. I love her in the show. The best writing in the show is her dialogue. You heard, uh, I thought, what was the best clip from the first episode there when she throws this uh, minx who's fucking with her life uh, every which way uh, out on her ass. It's a t terrifically written scene. She's lives it perfectly. I bet half of those lines came out uh, ad-libbed in the moment. Uh, and if they didn't, she's only a better actress uh, for how she pulled it off. I love the the sight of Hank Schrader uh, uh, brought back from the dead uh, is you know, wonderful. Dean Norris, maybe my favorite TV actor, or certainly delivered one of my favorite TV performances of all time. Uh, uh, but there it kind of ended. I didn't think he was put to very good use. And what I didn't like about this show is that the competition to uh, push boundaries is is it's it's it didn't make me think of a lurid, mobbed up nail salon in Florida. It made me think of middle aged, 
TV executives throwing around the word edgy. Uh, and that's where it started to lose me. Um, uh, and, um, I just thought that the pilot episode was a, was a somewhat spastic dance for people's attention. And it kept trying to uh, push boundaries and push buttons without settling into itself in a way. I really dislike the character and the per- performance by the actor who plays uh, Nisi Nash's boyfriend. Roller. Um, this lug. Mm. I don't believe she's involved with that guy. I don't need, I don't, uh, the writers do not need to make him that stupid. Um, but I, I will say this, the, the show that you describe is one that I'd be interested in watching. So if, if, if your description is accurate, let me put it, let me put it a slightly different way is that you have described what to me is most interesting about the show, which is the predicament that she is in and her attempt to find her own agency and deploy it within the circumstances, the vice of the circumstances as they surround her, like her relationship to, to the laundry, laundering ops, uh, operation, the, you know, the pill, the feel doctor, feel good doctor who's peddling the pills, the Russian mob who's trying to, you know, make a headway into their business, the uh, Hank Schrader mob with whom she has to have a relationship through the sun. I mean, all of that to me is interesting because Nisi Nash is interesting and there's nothing she could do on screen that wouldn't make me want to watch her. I just thought the the writing was kind of all over the place and it was just throwing shit at the wall. Um, I thought, but maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's just the fate of every pilot episode is, is to try to get the, to get the world and the apparatus up and running takes an enormous amount of slightly unfocused energy and maybe it settles in over the course of several episodes. Yeah. I mean, I definitely do think that all pilots have just an almost impossible job to throw, you know, 16 balls in the air and keep them all juggling and try and find something for everyone. So there, it, it's it's an almost impossible task that, you know, more than 400 shows do every year. But, and I have to say that some of the things you described, some of the things you mentioned, like, were like, yeah, I didn't like that, you know, as you were sort of going through them. You know, I find pretty much everything with Dean Norris, uh, who plays, as you say, the, the kind of the, the daddy, the big daddy character of this, Uncle you know. Uncle daddy. Uncle daddy. He, 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 is kind of the the kingpin, but the not terribly convincing kingpin of this Dixie Mafia uh, that's running the pill mill. And for me, like I was able, as you were going through there, I realized that what I was able to do as I was watching was kind of focus on the stuff that I liked and just kind of not exactly ignore, but just, just kind of put it to one side and think, well, that is what uh, Desna, which is Nisi Nash's character, that's what Desna has to deal with to you know, to achieve her dreams. She has a dream of, of getting a new place. Uh, she lives with her, her brother, Dean, who's autistic, who's played by Harold Perrineau. That character right now is not very convincing. Uh, the, the Uncle Daddy character is too over the top. Um, Roller. Uh, yeah, he was kind of a handful. He reminded me, I'm sure, intentionally of Spring Breaker, uh, the movie that I absolutely loved, actually. Um, you know, and I, I guess that's, that's a particular type of character that, you know, you when you have to establish very quickly, you go to 10 with it. But, you know, something that you also said, Steve, that, you know, it's TV executives looking for edgy. That was the opposite of what I thought. I felt that this is probably a show that got greenlit because of its kind of demographics. You know, TNT is a, is a network that traditionally appeals to women. Uh, it's traditionally, its big hits have been kind of, uh, you know, women-centered police dramas, they're changing a little bit. 
But this is a kind of a different kind of woman-centered show about a different kind of woman. These aren't cops. They're kind of criminals, but they're reluctant criminals. They're women who know that they maybe have to break the law to because the world isn't fair. Uh, and I just loved the women. I, you know, I don't care about the men at all, but I loved all of the women and I loved and totally believed that Desna would be kind of the mama bear looking after these women that she saw as her crew. June, I know you've uh, written about or talked about uh, the phenomenon of competency porn yes. in TV. And I thought this was a really great corrective for that. These are pretty incompetent middle management criminals. Yeah. And I don't think there's enough of that. I think that's a very underrepresented demographic in TV. <laughs> uh, I loved watching them screw up and uh, do surprising things. Um, Steve, I encourage you to watch future episodes because I think that uh, you will be surprised um, where it goes. I also liked it just as a series of postcards or pages, almost like a graphic novel. I think there are a lot of really beautiful details in the show like um there's a a totally over the top funeral um yes. <laughs> <laughs> where you know there's a a tower of those what are they hohos or those little chocolate little debbie snack cakes the, i believe there's some little debbie snack cakes at this funeral and um exotic dancers play a large role in in a way that you don't normally see them portrayed and I recently watched The Sopranos speaking of my mainstream yep. TV watching I watch everything a decade after after it was popular uh and thinking about the way that strip club uh mob money laundromat mm -hmm. is portrayed in that show versus this show was really fun and refreshing yeah she uh, she's which is the strip club that where some of the action of claws takes part is really the badabing from the woman's point of view um, and I did love the, the, just this whole world of women who are entrepreneurs. You know, they're either cam girls or they're strippers or they're, they work in nail salons or they own nail salons or they run nail salons. And these are not respectable jobs or they're not jobs that if you were, you know, at, at what is it? The junior league, they would not get you in. They might not get you a, a better uh, piece of real estate, but. That doesn't mean that these women are trash by any means. And I loved that we got to see women who are so often just written off as, you know, the girl who's going to be twirling in the background, that this time they're in the foreground. And, and it's, and it's not just, let's just put one of those women in the foreground. It works for me as a really, like, I believe this is their world and it's not just some TV exec trying to be edgy. It's something that got by a TV exec in my, from my point mm -hmm. of view. So the show is Claws. Apparently it's a masterpiece. <laughs> 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 uh, check it out. It's on TNT. Come to facebook.com slash culture fest to tell me why I'm completely wrong. All right, moving on. Beth Dudo is already known to music fans as the lead singer of the wonderful group Gossip. Now she's got a solo record, her first, on which she rediscovers her southern roots. She mixes them in with the punk rock that had inspired the origins of Gossip, all while redefining what a pop diva should look like and stand for. Let's listen to a cut from Fake Sugar. Oh. Get up and go. 
All right. Well, June, there's there's going to be absolutely no uh, problems uh, getting to uh, consensus on this topic. This is a, just an amazing record from an amazing singer and artist. Uh, tell us about Beth Ditto. Well, I must admit that I mostly know Beth Ditto as an icon rather than an actual performer. Like, I, you know, know a few of her songs, but like I bought her memoir. I would have bought this album, whether or not we were talking about it, not because, and I'm not even sure if I would have listened to it much, but it was almost in that way of like, this is someone who I really want, I really want to succeed. And so I almost want to become a patron of the arts and I want, to, I will buy her output to support her, which is a weird, um, maybe, and I'm, I'm a very aware is kind of a weird impulse because like I say, I don't really know her music that well. I just know that she's this, you know, big feminist lesbian or queer woman who's out there and who's so unapologetic and who makes out with her girlfriend or boyfriend on the red carpet and who is just always as big and unapologetic and as confident as I want everyone to be. And so I almost like... I, I love her for who she is almost more than for what she does. Christina, that's it's, it's an interesting way to comment her, right? Not through the music at all, but through this, you know, kind of, um, you know, surrounding uh, uh, iconography of Beth Ditto. Um, which which angle did you come at her from most? More the music or this public image? I come at it from both angles. I I truly do love her music and uh, the music she's made with her band Gossip, which recently broke up. Uh, but I also love her as a pop icon, um, as a style maven. She's, you know, shaved off her eyebrows. She's been muse to many fashion designers. She's released her own line of clothing. Um, she probably would love some of the nail art we saw on <laughs> claws. Um, she's like June said, outspoken, um, but also sort of unarguably cool. Uh, and you know, fat and her clothing line is, uh, for plus size women. Um, yeah, I love everything she does. And I had more of a, a mixed take on this album. Um, I love the songs that remind me of the best of the gossip, mm. which is to say, uh, upbeat and fun dance punk, uh, sort of disco inflected songs. Um, I think where she tried to sort of make her own thing happen now that she is out of the gossip, um, and some of the slower, more southern or uh classic rock tinged songs uh didn't click with me as well well it's funny i so i know nothing about her public image um which is shame on me but i you know that's the bubble that i live in um but i love the record i mean i, I have to say it's it, she's you know she just has that she just has it right mm -hmm. i mean she just has the ability to put all of her life experience you know, into a vocal performance, uh, you know, just incredible, uh, uh, expressive range and, 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 you know, musical facility. But it's funny that it's, that some of the music is really uncharacteristic of her earlier work. Christina, maybe just talk a little bit about the evolution of gossip. I mean, they were, they were kind of, they started more on the kind of Courtney Love end of, uh, the spectrum and worked their way towards, um, towards Southern inflected soul, as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Beth Ditto, 
as far as I know, uh, sort of came of age in the riot girl scene. Um, and you can definitely hear some of that in this album. Um, and definitely in her, in her onstage performance, which is totally over the top. And like you said, I mean, she can command a room like nobody's business. Um, and, but at the same time, she's, uh, her voice is, clear i almost get sort of a musical theater vibe from her (laughs) like uh she's got a beautiful Mm. vibrato which you don't hear all that often in punk um so in a way i think that this album is sort of the logical conclusion of where she was meant to go and i think i just need a little time to get used to it but also i did love seeing like i got a little bit of dolly parton vibes from a couple of these songs um and you know also from just her persona as this big unapologetic femme um and yeah i I highly recommend it to anyone i'm not trying to to downplay how great the album is but yeah it 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 was interesting and sort of shocking for me to hear uh some of the slower songs and one of them sounded like i think she called it her u2 song yes um and made me think of bruce springsteen it was completely out of the blue yeah so that's a song called we could run and it's this is a, the album is really, I would say, inconsistent. Sounds like a you know just a criticism, which I guess it kind of is. Although it, I don't know that albums have to be consistent. There are all kinds of styles, you know, from one song to the next. One minute we're in this kind of, you know, you can imagine it in a gay country western bar. Uh, the next song, you know, is more slow and moody. The next song is, well, this one. Uh, we could run. She described it as a U2 song. And so maybe I heard that before I heard the song. I don't know if I would have, you know, put that, given it that label myself, but it is totally true. And in a way, it highlights her voice um, in a way that some of the other songs don't. I mean, you really see that she could belt, for example, just to give another uh, musical theater term. We could. All right. Well, we all agree this is a terrific record. Um, but June, I have a question. Let me see if I can formulate it. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to understand is why Beth Ditto and why now? I'm st- starting to hear her name everywhere, right? Like I can't swing a cat without <laughs> smacking Beth Ditto in the forehead. You know, NPR, everyone loves us. What, what is it something about the music that explains the universal love, the persona, the moment, or are they just all coming together? Uh, um, cosmically right now i think that it is more the persona i think it's you know the fact that vogue you know has did a big piece about her there was even a video where beth ditta goes to brighton beach there's something that's so attractive about a person who shouldn't be confident by the way that our society works who grew up poor in the south she's from arkansas she's fat she is stylish she is the kind of person that people make fun of she doesn't give a shit. She is confident. She is proud. She's out there. And I just feel that we're all craving that right now. You know, we see this. I don't want to, you know, go full Trump. But, 
you know, we see how confidence, uh, blind confidence can lead to deception and self-delusion and, and maybe even an entire national delusion uh, for or for some parts of, for maybe a narrow non-majority of the population. But I just feel that at the time where we're aware of of, uh, of bullying in Pride Month, it just I can kind of pull together this whole grab bag of of like not quite the whole reason. I mean, mm-hmm. I honestly mm-hmm. I did enjoy the album. It's but it's not because of the music that I like her. I just love her, and there's something about her as the face of America or as one voice of America that I just love. And I just want her to succeed so that more people like her will succeed, I guess. I think for some people, myself included, even if they're not familiar with uh, her whole body of work, there might be a song or two that people connect to. And, uh, you know, they lend themselves well to being personal pump up anthems. (laughs) And I think uh, for me, one reason why this album has gotten a lot of traction among my friends is just it's Pride Month. It's the beginning of summer. And for me, that's what Beth Ditto does best is, you know, something that could, for instance, go on the Culture Gab Fest's, uh Summer Strut playlist, <laughs> songs that make you feel great about yourself, uh, that make you dance. Uh, she recently was talking about um, Standing in the Way of Control, which I think is one of Gossip's biggest hits and one of my personal pump-up anthems. Uh, and she said, you know, I don't know. It's surprising to me that this is still relevant right now. She compared it to the sign people sometimes hold at protests these days saying, you know, why do I still have to? Pro- I can't believe I'm still protesting this shit. Uh, and I think there, you know, it, though this album is sort of an evolution of her personal sound, there is a timelessness to the ferocity and uh excitement and sensuality um, and, you know, a lotness or too muchness mm. of their music. That's a fantastic answer. Um, so w- why don't you pick, um, Christina or June, pick a cut for us to go out on that is uh, Summer Strutty. <laughs> oh, oh my God. That song, the chorus of it. All right, well, the album is Big Sugar from Beth Ditto. We loved it. Tell us what you thought. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right, moving on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse June Thomas. What do you have? Well, mostly I want to take this opportunity to, you know, boast that I got to see Julius Caesar at Shakespeare in the Park. And so since probably most people can't see it because it's ending very soon, even if uh, we all were in New York City, I just really want to rave about the genius of Elizabeth Marvell. She is mostly a New York theatre actress, although she often shows up on TV shows that are filmed in New York. And she is a brilliant actress. And in Julius Caesar, she played Mark Antony. And she was running around. She was screaming. She was crying. She was doing all of those things that great theatre actors do. And she was doing it like two inches from the seats, you know, because they did kind of go into the bleachers kind of thing. And she is just an actress who whenever she shows up, whatever role she's gotten, um, she's 
she just elevates everything. Uh, and so this is uh, my plug for the complete works of Elizabeth Marvell. Also, she has amazing hair and you always notice her hair. I'm really not like a person who likes long hair, generally speaking, but she just has amazing hair. So Elizabeth Marvell and her amazing hair. Fantastic. Um, Christina, what do you have? Uh, so I, I'm not sure if the world is in a golden age of short stories right now or if I'm just in a golden age of reading a lot of great short stories. Uh, but I recently came across uh, a 2015 collection of short stories, Rebecca Mackay's Music for Wartime. Um, I think I found this on a friend's bookshelf and liked the sound of it. And I was it, it was one of the those books that, you know, I lost a lot of sleep over because I found this book's treatment of uh, cross generational trauma really compelling. Um, she goes from stories about the AIDS crisis, uh, family histories of massacres in World War II and religious terror. Um, and then she brings it back to the present with a, an examination of how reality TV producers can fuck with people's lives, which is, you know, uh, considering the present scandal of, with Bachelor in Paradise and accusations of sexual assault, I found uh, surprisingly current. Um, I, I'm always impressed with an author who can deliver a whole book's worth of emotion in a couple pages of a short story. And uh, this is a book that did that for me. Ah, fantastic. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to slip in an extra endorsement here, which is for Reno 911, <laughs> uh, the show that featured Nisi Nash, a comedy show, sort of golden era comedy central TV show about a, bumbling uh police department in reno uh incredible ensemble uh cast doing in increasingly goofy nonsensical things week, week after week it's really worth uh doing a mini binge on it if you get a chance and she's terrific in it but my endorsement endorsement this week is um the film critic david thompson has written um an entry in the jewish lives series um of books from Yale University Press. Uh, and he had a slightly unexpected assignment, which is to write about Jack Warner of the Warner Brothers. Mm. Um, and he, what he did instead really is he wrote a book, we wrote a book called um, Warner Brothers. He wrote it about all of the uh, uh, four brothers. Uh, uh, the Making of an American movie, movie Studio is the is the subtitle. But what the book really is about, in a way, it's 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 in its own way a kind of skewed history of the 20th century as told through the movie studio that, you know, started out as uh, a fly-by-night operation, as many of them did out in the movie colony in California, got kind of lucky with sound on film. They, they, they broke it first with the jazz singer and then immediately built on that advantage uh, quite quite shrewdly and quite aggressively. Uh, and they um, went into gangster pictures with Edward G. Robinson and Cagney. Uh, they discovered Humphrey Bogart uh, and put him obviously to perfect use finally um, after not understanding his talents uh, in the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, uh, but on and on and on and on up through uh, Bonnie and Clyde in the late sixties. But, but there's something about that trajectory and Thompson, what I like about it is a very essayistic book. It doesn't presume to be a work of original research. It's not. Um, his principal ability is is as a critic and not as a historian. So he reads much of that history through the films that they made. But uh, for example, the careers of Betty Davis and 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 Joan Crawford, it, the studios 
very troubled, but but in many ways, interestingly, equivocal or a relationship to women and strong women in particular. Uh, it, just on and on and on and on. It's relationship to World War II, to Ronald Reagan. Uh, it is not the least appropriate lens through which to look at the American empire because such a central part of our status as the country, the society that defined the 20th century was Hollywood film. Uh, and Warner was at the center. Warner's was at the center of that. And he gets at that without hammering it. You know, it's, it's, it's that, that's really the point is that he really reads these films as highly specific idiosyncratic documents. Um, but the cumulative effect of the book is rather surprising, which is that at the end of it, you, you get a sense of what American society was to the 20th century. Highly recommended. Um, Christina, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a total pleasure. And I hope we have you back soon as a guest or a, or a co-host. This was a blast. Thank you. Excellent. June, always a total pleasure. It's been way too long. I don't <laughs> even remember the last time I podcasted with you. Anytime. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Or as always, drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. The managing producer is June Thomas. And of course, Andy Bowers, he's the poopa, right? Chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gap Fest is part of that network. You can check out an entire roster of great shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Christina Cotarucci and June Thomas, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. Oh, yeah.